Hey, good morning. It is great to be together, and I love singing with you and hearing um, the people of God sing, and as I do love also to be able to open up His Word. And so we are in the book of Ruth, and we find ourselves in our third um, uh, sermon, uh, installment, so to speak, of this series, and uh, in the book of Ruth, we find ourselves in chapter 2, so if you would uh, open your Bible, turn there, uh, get your app out, go there, Ruth chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, but what we uh, will cover is the entire chapter, uh, that is all of chapter 2. So um, the subtitle of the series is Ruth, From Tragedy to Beauty, and today we're going to hone in on um, the idea that chapter 2 brings out the transition from tragic pain to beautiful provision. So from tragic pain to beautiful provision. So I'll read verses 1 to 4, pray for us, and then we will dive right in. Ruth chapter 2 verses 1 to 4. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Let me pray. Father, we do ask that your name would be praised in this moment. We ask that we would Gather in this moment with our aim to be to treasure you together. We need each other, and most importantly, most desperately, we need you. And so I ask, Father, that in this moment you would prepare all of us, including myself, to receive a fresh word from you. I ask for a heart that has stripped away from it, Areas of pride that would keep us from receiving. Areas of hurt that would keep us from learning and loving. I ask God that you would fill us by your spirit with a strange sense of confidence that you are here and you are going to do a work in all of our hearts. So it's to that end that we pray, that you would get the glory. We would be as we are, receivers, and that we would be changed and we would give you away. Please, Father, move, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this weekend is Memorial Day weekend, and we would be remiss if we did not thank God and honor those who have given their lives for our freedom. The fact that we are able to have a sense of freedom to worship Jesus here is owing in no small measure to people who have sacrificed their lives and given their lives so that we could worship. We have a team right now in Nepal, and they are there on the ground uh, loving an international worker that we're connected with and seeking to spread the name of Jesus there, and it is in that country where they would not have the freedom to do what we're doing in the name of Jesus. And so not only do we have the freedom to worship, but the freedom of, of speech, the freedom to express our agreements and disagreements, our pains and our joys, all of that because men and women of multiple ethnicities have given their lives so that we could have freedom. And so today we remember their provision and we're thankful to God for those who have lost their lives. Not only military, but also those police officers who have sought to uh, serve so hard to protect us in so many ways. So although their protection and everyone else's protection is incomplete, um, we trust in the Lord, but thank God for them. 
As I was thinking about provision, I also thought about uh, this story. I came across this story uh, in um, an article, and it was about a woman named Brenda Jones. Brenda Jones, 69 years old, she was a great-grandmother, and she has been waiting for a year for a liver transplant. And after a year, it was, um, she got a phone call. And the phone call was for a match and for an organ that would um, help her live a healthy, sustainable life. But at the same time, there was another woman. She was 23 years old. Her name was Abigail Flores. And Abigail was in much worse shape than Brenda Jones. So bad that if she didn't get one in the next few days, she would die. And so... In a sense of trepidation, the doctors asked Brenda Jones, age 69, if she might be willing to give this liver to this 23-year-old woman. And they said that Brenda Jones quickly said, yes, I can't imagine this little girl, (laughs) she's 69, one's 23, I can't imagine this little girl not being able to live when I had the opportunity to provide for her. And so, this story of provision, whether it's the provision of those who have lost their lives to give freedom, whether it's provision here to help someone who couldn't help themselves, there's this underlying sense that we are all in need of some type of provision. And when God is called the great provider, it speaks to this sense that If you need provision, it means you can't take care of yourself. When God is merciful, the phrase that's attached to that is miserable, meaning those who are miserable need God's mercy. So we come in here in a great sense of need. And our greatest need is not necessarily just our freedom or even our physical lives. Our greatest need is that we would have an answer for the greatest question in the universe, and that is what happens? When we die, what happens to our lives? Christ has come to provide an answer to that, an answer to shame and guilt, to give his life as a ransom so that we might have life and have it to the full. And so today we're going to look at God's beautiful provision in the midst of tragedy. But when you talk about needing God's provision, we find ourselves in the book of Ruth in a very tragic place. A very tragic place. If you remember, Ruth is now at a situation where she has lost her husband. She has lost her land and her culture. She is now for 10 years, she was married and never able to have children. And now her husband has died. And so the outcome looks even more bleak that she would ever have the provision of a husband, or she would ever be provided children. On top of that, because in that culture, if you lost your husband, you lost the primary sense of your livelihood, she was poor. And not only that, as she walks into this city, the city of Bethlehem, after being a Moabite all of her life, she walks in and she gets scowls and looks. Because the Moabite people were a people who had never followed God. They were against God's people. They had rejected God. They served pagan deities, so to speak, false gods. And now she walks into the scene of Bethlehem and she gets stare after stare. Not only that, her traveling partner is her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi has just lost her husband, lost her two kids, her two sons, And if anything could describe this, I think it would be tragedy. It's tragic pain that leads us to this point. But chapter 2 shines a ray of hope of God's provision in the midst of tragedy. Here's what we want to see about God's provision. We want to see his provision of providence. Two, we want to see provision of faithfulness. And three, his provision of needs. How he met needs. Provision of providence, provision of faithfulness, provision of needs. God is the provider in the midst of this tragic situation, so we watch in this narrative. 
we watch the story shift from tragic pain to beautiful provision. Let's look at the provision of providence. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. Now this comment, the reason there's a chapter break here, this comment is out of left field. Naomi has just spent time rehearsing the tragic circumstances of her life. She has said that she has been emptied by God, that God has removed everything from her, that God has brought calamity upon her, that God was judging her, and she even says that God is against her. This is her statement of faith and belief. This is the crisis in which she finds herself in. But now, all of a sudden, it's like you're watching a movie and the camera pans over to a guy in the distance and zooms in on him and then zooms back out to continue the story. And we have no idea as of yet how he applies, but there's a foreshadowing that he's going to be important. And so now Naomi had a relative of her husband's a worthy man, that means a man of good character, of the clan of Elimelech. Elimelech was Naomi's husband who had died. It was Ruth's father-in-law. And this relative's name was Boaz. Now the camera moves back to the story at hand, verse 2. And Ruth, the Moabite, this is just like a scarlet letter that's constantly around her neck. She is of... Another ethnicity. She is other. She is cast over here. And although the problem in the scriptures was not interracial marriage because of ethnicity, the problem was interracial marriage if it meant a believer, a follower of God, connecting to an unbeliever, one who was going after a pagan. That's why this was such an atrocity in the eyes of the people of Bethlehem. She was coming in as a Moabite. And now she says to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. So she knows that her only provision as a woman who is poor is to go to a field in hopes that she could glean at the edges of the field which was always provided for the poor. But she never knew what the field owner would be like. Would he hurt her? Would he protect her? Would he make things difficult on her? Had no idea, but she knew she had to be faithful to make provision. Now verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Let's read that again. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Whenever the scriptures talk about happenstance, it is a shout out to the mysterious working of our God. Let's make sure we understand. She just happened to come to a man who was of worthy character who would take care of her and not abuse her. And when she went out to that field, she just happened to come to a man that was going to look out for her. And as we'll see later on in the story, take care of her and not only do what was required, but do more than what was required. She just happened to come to that kind of guy. And then she just happened to come to that kind of guy who was also a relative. A relative that could be the solution to the marriage problem, to the provision problem, to the carrying on of a family problem that was there. She just happened to come to a relative. Just happened to. Now, although it is very common to talk about coincidence and chance and these kind of things, the biblical picture is there is no such thing. Whenever you hear happenstance, what you begin to think of is God is mysteriously at work behind the scenes for his good pleasure according to his sovereign will. What is providence? What is this provision of providence? Providence is is God intervening to work his will. It is God intervening to work his will according to his sovereign glory. Now, here's what happens when we begin to talk this way. People get a little confused and weirded out and uncomfortable. 
Because when you talk about God working things out according to his purpose, what some people hear is, oh, so that means I had nothing to do with it. God took total control and I have no responsibility. That's what some people think. And others will think, God is not in control. Whatever happened was because I determined my own future. If that went well, it was because I made good choices. If that went bad, it was because I tanked it and I blew it. God has nothing to do with it. He's like a deist who just sets the watch and spins it and then it just runs. Well, which is it? Is it you're responsible or is it God is in control? Amen. And you're responsible. See, if you would have just answered either one, you would have been right. Isn't this a great world? But how do I know this to be true? How do I know this to be true? Was it Ruth being faithful to go into work? Or was it God working in Ruth so that she would go to this specific field and meet this specific person? Which one is it? I think the book of Proverbs helps us out here because the answer is yes. We are fully responsible. And God is not just fully in control, but He is establishing all of our steps according to His glory and His sovereign purpose. The book of Proverbs really helps us walk through this tension. And I was immensely helped by a sermon by Tim Keller called His Plans, Your Plans that walks through some of these things. So here's some echoes of that in this. But if you go to Proverbs 16, you begin to see the wise Solomon kind of laying out these tensions. Proverbs 16, verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man. Let's just stop right there. Man is a generic term for humanity. That is, the plans that you make. I'm going to go to this college. I'm going to date this person. I'm going to marry this person. I'm going to buy this house. I'm going to do this car. I'm going to move to this city, whatever. The plans that you make, those are your plans. The plans of a heart are man's. They're yours. You're responsible for those. You're responsible for the good that happens. You're responsible for the bad that happens. That's why in the scriptures when people intentionally walk away from God, there are consequences. And you have no one to blame but yourself. Plans of the heart belong to man. But, and then there's an interesting phrase that follows the but. But, the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Okay, what's that mean? It means what it says it means. What comes out the mouth is from the Lord. Not everything beautiful has come out your mouths, nor mine. Sometimes it has, sometimes it hasn't. You saying that's from the Lord? That's what the text says. The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Is it from the Lord or is it from me? It's from you. It's from the Lord. Ultimately established by God. Are you responsible for that angry word you said? You better believe it. That was your choice. You're like, you're making no sense. Okay, keep reading. Let's go. Proverbs 16, 9. Remember, this is the Bible. This isn't just me kind of making up ideas. The heart of a man plans his way. So we make plans. This is what our heart does. These are our choices. and We're responsible for it. But the Lord establishes the steps. I'm going this way. I'm going this way. The fact that I just did that. Who just did that? I did. Who established those steps? The Lord did. That's what the passage says. The Lord establishes the steps. So, you got up this morning. Hopefully you brushed your teeth. You got in the car, put on some clothes, thanks God. You drive here, you poured your cup of coffee if you had one, 
You come in here, you brought it in a mug, you kicked it over underneath and created a spill that we're going to have to clean up, but that's a different story for a different day. And you're sitting here right now. You did that. Those are the plans in your heart. You're responsible for all of those choices. But the Bible says, ultimately, the Lord established your steps. Here because God has brought you here. And that's not an overstatement. But let me just make it a little more complicated. The last verse in this chapter, Proverbs 16:33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Okay, whose ball is it? Flip the coin. Heads or tails? Think Vegas. Snake eyes. Who threw the dice? You did. Who flipped the coin? That ref did. How does it land? It's every decision is from the Lord. Now, what do we do with this? What we must say is the Lord determines our steps. Our future is completely fixed by God. And this is not 50% us, 50% God. It is 100% free, 100% determined. Tim Keller says that's kind of like oil and water. Yes, it's what it feels like, but not according to our God, you are fully responsible, and God is fully in control, and this is immensely practical, because if you just carried out your thoughts that God was sovereign and in control, and your choices make no difference at all, you would be passive and lazy. Eh, My choices don't mean anything anyway. Everything's kind of fatalistically determined so why does it matter what I do smack you in the face oh that was God you know whatever no that was you that was your sin you're culpable for your sin and if anyone does not believe in Jesus Christ they will experience an eternity apart from Jesus and that is owing to their rebellion their aggressiveness against God but who gets the credit who gets the glory for salvation Who is establishing the steps? Whose purposes can never be thwarted? It is God. So if your choices have no connection to the future, God has always determined everything, then you're going to be lazy and passive. But if the future is wide open and you're determining all of your future, then you probably should not have left your house today. You probably would just rather be in a straitjacket. Because how do you know? How do you know when you chose to brush your teeth this morning that you shouldn't have texted an encouraging text to somebody else? And that that encouraging text was going to be received by somebody who was weak. And that text was going to sustain their faith. But instead, because you didn't send send it and you selfishly brushed your teeth, now all of a sudden they get angry. They don't feel encouraged. They hurt six other people whose lives are forever changed all because you brushed your teeth, you selfish person. How do you know? If everything is bound up and dependent upon your individual choices, you might as well stay at home. Never make any decision ever. Because you're going to make a wreck of it. How do you know that some harsh word you said to your spouse or your kid doesn't wreck them for the rest of their lives? Because you made some, you had a bad day. If everything is dependent upon you, you are crushed. Let's just take my story a little bit. So before I met my wife, I dated a girl for two years. And it was off and on for two years. Like we broke up like three or four times. And that was a a helpful sign uh, uh, later on that that was really not a good relationship for me to be in. And so as I was sitting there in this relationship, we were believers. We were praying. And I was asking God that this would work out and that we would be married. 
what if I got my way? First of all, there'd be no day day. What I call Dana Lynn, my wife. We just celebrated 20 years of marriage this past week. And I'm thankful to God. Amen. That's him. And I said in the first service, and I say it, it says more about her than it does me. And about God overall. But then that means we would have had no Elijah, which means you would have had no drummer and no keyboardist today. Okay? We'd have had no Jaden. We'd have not adopted our two kids from Ethiopia. And we probably wouldn't have planted this church because she was from my hometown and she was going to hunker down there and I was too. So who knows what would have happened with this. And let's just process this. While I'm praying to get married to this woman, our relationship was mixed with going to church but also choosing some sinful patterns and paths. So in my prayers, I probably was asking for maybe a third of what was right and good and probably two-thirds was tainted with all my mess. Okay? What in the world do I do with that? And yet God in His kindness stopped this trajectory change I get married, we have kids, church is planted. There's a whole new trajectory. If all of that's on me, I quit. I'm going to wreck everything. Because what's my chance that I've gotten much better at this whole prayer gig? Right? Like, okay, hopefully I've improved over the past 20 some odd years. Like, maybe it it was a third kind of selfish or a third kind of pure motives and two-thirds bad. What if you flip that? Maybe it's two-thirds... I'm going after what God wants and a third battle. It still means I've got a wreck going on in my heart. So do you. The practical beauty of what we get to experience right now. We get to experience what Tim Keller says. The Bible doesn't say your choices have no connection to your destiny. Or that your choices determine your destiny. But rather God in his sovereignty relates your choices partially to your destiny. But he is the one who fixes everything. It's both and. Not either or. God gets the glory. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 112 can say. He does not fear bad news, nor is he afraid of the future. Because when you have a God who has proven his love for you on the cross, then you can trust him to orchestrate the universe in a way that is right and good for you and for him. That is why the promise of Romans 8.28 says, For God works all things together for good for those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. He is working all things. And that is our God. That secure, firm future has no greater picture than it does at the cross. It was at the cross where the greatest tragedy that could ever be known happened that is remind yourself of this what happened to get to the cross there was abandonment there was betrayal there was mocking there was overlooking the justice of one criminal to convict someone who was not guilty and treat him like a criminal there were people shouting that he would be crucified and all of that was sin And Acts 4.23 says that the death of Jesus was according to the foreknowledge and purpose of God. Which is it? Did all that lead to sin? Or was all that according to the purpose of God? All that was because of sin and all of it was according to the purpose of God in order that we might be saved. If that's the glories of the cross, that's a security that we can walk in. 
And so, if you're ever walking around and you hear somebody say, oh, that was luck, don't be the guy that's just like, no, there's no such thing as luck, you know, whatever. Don't do that. But in your heart, just know when you hear coincidence, when you hear lucky, just know and be comforted that when it says in the book of Ruth, it just happened to happen. No, our God is mysteriously and beautifully at work and you can trust him with your future. And so what is our response? Our response is therefore not to be lazy because our choices matter, but in the security bought for us by the cross, in the security of our God working out all of things according to his sovereign purpose, our job is to be faithful. So we not only have the provision of God's providence, but we have the provision of faithfulness. And you see faithfulness in Ruth. So not only was Ruth faithful to forsake her people and to stay with Naomi, not only was Ruth faithful to say, your God will be my God and your people will be my people, but now she is faithful to take care of herself and her mother-in-law by going to the field and to glean at the edges. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? So he notices Ruth over here, and knows she's a Moabite. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answers, she's a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. You see that faithfulness? She was a hard worker. Now verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen to my daughter. Don't go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. That means the young women who already had approval to be on the field and to glean. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? You see how Boaz is protecting her. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She was wearing that like a badge of shame. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. What's that speak to? She was faithful behind the scenes, not trumpeting her faithfulness, but just being faithful. And now word has come to Boaz, this woman has been faithful ever since her husband died to take care of her mother-in-law, Naomi. She's been faithful. And Boaz goes on, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So now you have a picture. A picture that Ruth was faithful, but her faithful actions were because she had rooted herself in a trust in God. Do you see that? Look at the last verse that I just read. The God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She is taking refuge in God. She's trusting God and out of that is a life of faithfulness. Now, Ruth was being faithful because she really didn't know what else to do. And now I'm asking you, do you know what faithfulness looks like? Faithfulness is doing what you know to be pleasing to God. Faithfulness is doing what you know to be pleasing to God and doing that thing. And you know what faithfulness looks like. Not completely. Do you know your future? No. Do you know what decisions to make? No. But you know what faithfulness looks like. You know how you should be talking. You know what words should come out of your mouth. 
Words of encouragement, not slander. Words that build up and not tear down. Words of love, not words of hate. You know that's faithful. You also know that with part of your time, faithfulness is to spend time with Jesus in the word and prayer. You know that. Yes, you should be raw. You should share your heart, your emotions, your fears, your sadness. But you must spend time with Him, not just to talk to Him and to give Him all your heart, but to place yourself under a differing viewpoint than your own mind and your own feelings and the culture around you. To submit your life to God's Word so that He can be your instructor, not just you, yourself, and your feelings. So you know it's faithful to stop and to spend time with Jesus. You also know you should work, right? Like I teach my kids a young age. It's just fun when they say it at age five or six. You don't work, you don't eat. It's just what the Bible says. You don't work, you don't eat. You just know it's faithful to work. It's faithful to work hard. Not exactly saying where, but you know it's faithful to work. You know it's faithful to care for those who are near you. could be a roommate. It could be a, a family member. It could be a kids. It could be a spouse. You just know it's faithful to be a part of caring for those who are in close proximity. You know that. You also know that when you are hurt, you know it doesn't give you the license to hurt back. You know it's faithful not to seek revenge. You know that it's faithful to want good for them, to pray for them, and to love them. Yes, that might mean certain boundaries for sure. But you know it's faithful not to curse them and to want good for them. So, friends, this much is clear. I think we know what it means to be faithful in so many ways. Now, I can't tell you what in the world tomorrow looks like. I can't tell you all kinds of future decisions. But you know what faithfulness is. And so, what do you do when your pain is high? What do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do while you wait? Sometimes faithfulness is all you've got. That's what you do. You do what you know is faithful. Because faithfulness sometimes is all you have. You don't have respect like you think you deserve it. You don't have a listening ear. You might not have people pursuing you. You might not have people accepting you. You don't have this. You don't have that. But Ruth chose not to focus on what she did not have. She did not focus there. She focused on what she must do. And that was to be faithful. And so, what do we do? We must fight to be faithful. Because God is attracted to faithfulness like a magnet. This 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 tells us this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. He tells us earlier what humility is. It's considering others more significant than ourselves. That is, faithfulness. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God, what's the next word? Okay, I know we're a little tired. Stay with me. God, what? Opposes the who? But he gives what? To the humble. That's right. God opposes the proud. He's working against pride, but he's giving grace. He's helping. He's attracted to. He's fighting for the humble. Faithfulness is the place where God's grace is attracted. Now, what if I told you that I'd give you a million dollars if you got wet, but you had to get wet by the rain. You'd be like, that's really a weird statement. I'm just like, okay, stay with me. I give you a million dollars if you get wet by rain. Would you stay in your house 
or outside your house? Outside, right? Because there's a 100% chance that if you're inside your house, you will not get wet by rain. And some of you skeptics out there, shame on you for saying, oh, but what if the roof has a hole in it? Or what if there's no roof on the house? Stop it! 100% chance you're not going to get wet in the house. Now, you go outside. I can't tell you when you're going to get wet. But you will eventually. And I can't tell you when God's mercy and grace and encouragement and presence and power is going to hit you. But I promise you, walk in faithfulness and it will come. You walk away from Him, you walk in your own ways, there's a 100% chance you're headed for destruction. God promises that the waterfall of His grace and mercy will fall down upon His people as they walk in faithfulness. And that's what we see. That's what we see with Ruth. But I called it the provision of faithfulness. You know why I did that? Once again, it brings us back to the beginning. I thought it was Ruth. Ruth was faithful. And yet you're saying it was provided. You see God around every corner, don't you? Yes, I do. But I thought it was Ruth who went out to the field to glean. I thought it was Ruth who rejected her people and went and followed God. I thought it was Ruth. I thought it was Ruth. Well, the psalmist helps us with this tension. Was it Ruth's faithfulness? Yes. But who provided that? It was God. Listen to how David talks in Psalm 18, 23. David says this, I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. Just reading that makes me feel icky. And some of you, that doesn't make you feel icky at all. You're like, yes, that's right. I did what was right. I'm blameless. David had to walk rightly to be blameless and to be above reproach, to be above being called guilty. And so he was like, at this point in his life, I'm blameless and I am above guilt. Did you do that, David? Yes. But now look at what David says in Psalm 18:31. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God, the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless? You hear what he says there? Who made his way blameless? God, thank you, from the mouth of babes. Hello, don't make this too hard. Was he blameless? Did he have to be blameless? Yes. Is he responsible for that? Yes. Who is ultimately equipping him and fully giving him that blamelessness? It is who? Thank you. That's right. It is God. And so, what we have here is a call that we should walk in faithfulness. What is our response to God's wonderful providence and the security of a future? It is to walk in faithfulness. And as you do so, you know that that faithful walking is a gift from God. But what about when you fail? I failed. Have you been perfectly faithful just this weekend? No. What do you do with that? That's why we lean not ultimately upon our ability to be faithful. We lean upon the faithfulness of Jesus. Who was faithful when we could not be. And therefore died in our place for our faithlessness so that when he was raised from the dead three days later and when he ascended, he gives us his Holy Spirit that we might have confidence he will equip us with what we are called to do. We can be faithful because he was faithful. We can be faithful because he lives inside of his people. And if you're not one of his children, use this moment today to fully surrender to that beautiful Savior. But we see God's provision of providence. We see God's provision of faithfulness. And then, honestly, you just begin to understand God's provision of needs. That is, it's what you think of when you say, oh, they provided me food. They provided me this. You just think about needs being met. Well, that's exactly what you see happening 
here in the passage. Let me read the rest of the story. Verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread, this is to Ruth, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. And she rose to glean. But when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull some out from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. What do we have here? We have God providing for her needs through Boaz. Here's what happened. God took care of her needs by, through Boaz. Boaz gave her food, verses 8 and 9. Boaz protected her, verse 9, by telling the young men not to touch her and not to abuse her. So Boaz was an advocate for her. Verse 20, or in verse 13, she fell on her face in wonder at kindness of God. She was comforted, verse 13. She was shown dignity, verse 13. She was given food and drink in verses 13 and 14, which I just read. He even goes above and beyond to say, glean the sheaves, verse 15. God was providing for her needs. Now, First thing you need to see is God was providing for her in part because she was poor. There was a rule that God made. And God set it up this way. That if you owned a field, you should not glean all the way to the edges. But the edges should be saved for, here are the four categories, for the poor, the sojourner, that is the foreigner who's in a foreign land like an immigrant, the widow, and the orphan. So you who have access to property and possessions, you should not, what American mindset, you should not take all that is yours, but you should save the edges so that the poor, the sojourner, the widow, and the orphan would have a place to glean. Built into God's understanding of property was that you should be considering the poor, the sojourner, the immigrant, in how you structure your life. Not as an option, but as a mandate by God. And so some of you have means. Some of you have access. And there are some who do not have access. It has been ordained in God's beautiful, mysterious providence that we should have a keen eye towards the poor. And with our resources, we should not just by default every now and then. We should have a strategic plan to care for those in need to grant access where there is no access this is the pattern that we begin to see Boaz doing he was faithful now what's also interesting about Boaz is this the rule was just leave the edges so that they would come through and if anything had fallen down they were supposed to leave it fallen you know, when you gather up everything, you don't quite get everything. So they were supposed to not go back for round two. They were supposed to leave some of it there so that the poor could come and gather it up. They even say in the book of Deuteronomy that if there were vineyards and grapes fall off, those fallen grapes should be left there so that the poor, when they come through, they could pick up the grapes. God had established care for the poor from the beginning. Now those were the rules. Boaz went beyond the rules. Boaz says, if you look at it right here, look at verse uh, 15. Hey, young men, let her glean even among the sheaves, which wasn't a command, and do not reproach her. That means now he's an advocate for her. He's taking care of her. This is where we just need to be a church of advocacy. For those who do not have, for those who are hurting, we need to be a voice for the voiceless. We need to be an advocate for those who are abused and hurting. Who are marginalized and estranged. But then he goes on in verse 16. 
And he says, and pull out some of the bundles. So they've gathered, and now he says, pull some of that out and take care of her as well. What does that expose? A generous heart. He went beyond what was just required to take care of the poor. Now here's what's amazing. What's amazing is, was that Boaz providing or was that God providing? Yes, it was. It was God providing through Boaz. And many of us will never know how our faithfulness was used as a provision for someone else. But God uses us in our faithfulness to take care of people. It can be an encouraging word. It can be a financial gift. It can be a meal. It can be a something, just your presence. Whatever it is, there's a sense of your faithfulness God uses as his hands and feet of provision. Luther says it this way. Luther says that our jobs, our workplace, it's like masks that God wears to care for people. So our everyday faithfulness is like a mask that God wears to care for people through us. Here's the way he says it. Luther says, when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we ask God, give us today our daily bread. How does God answer that prayer? By means of the farmer who planted and harvested the grain. The baker who made it, made the flour into bread. And the person who prepared the meal. All of these are in play when God answers the prayer, give us today our daily bread. Our everyday faithfulness in what the world would say is just an average old mundane job. They are masks. Of God caring for his people. Many of you are being used in your faithfulness. As the provision of God for someone else. And so friends, what do we do? What do we do with this? I pray. I pray that when you look at your life. And you're in the middle of tragedy you would realize you're in the middle of the story. You're not at the end. And when you think God has left you, I want you to say, God is always, 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 say it one more time, always working. He is. Because He is establishing your steps and He is going to fulfill His purposes. And what does that do in us? It leaves us not to be passive, but it leads us to be faithful. And in our hopefulness and in our faithfulness, it allows us to then expect. Expect for God to meet our needs as He sees fit and expect for God to use you to be His hands and feet to meet the needs of others. It all begins with, do you trust that God is good? And he is providing for you. So today, run after Christ and trust him as your provider. Let's pray.